Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3, and we will be looking at verses 13 through 21. John three thirteen to 21. Before we do that, let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would uh, come now in power and speak to us through your word. We pray that you would accompany the proclamation of Christ and your word with the Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of sin, that you would um, conform us to the image of Christ, that you would use, um, that you would use me for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I love you. Three words. Three simple words. And it's funny how those three simple words can make us feel so happy. Right? Perhaps. Or, if you've ever uh, had the experience of saying those words and someone responding to you, thank you. How embarrassed you feel with those words. Or how afraid you might feel to speak those words. I remember when I was younger, there was a sort of reverence around those words. Uh, Special words were for special people. And so I hope I have taught my children really to revere those words, even though we use them freely and often around our house. But there's something even more important that I hope they will learn And it's this, I hope they will learn that love spoken is only as good as love shown. What I mean by this is the words, I love you, are only as good as the actions that back up those words. So love is expressed in words, yes, but it is also expressed in actions of care. And so we think of the actions of Abraham's love for God when he offered up his son, Isaac. The steps up the mountain must have been difficult for them. They had already walked a really long ways, and now they had to navigate their way up the place for the sacrifice. But it wasn't the climb that must have been so difficult for Abraham, was it? It was the thought of what must take place once they got to their destination. And if he's like me, he was rehearsing in his mind over and over and over again what this was going to be like. What God had commanded him to do to sacrifice his one and only son who he loved so dearly. How would he do this? Knowing how much he loved Isaac. But he loved God more. And he trusted God. That somehow God would spare his son or raise him up from the dead, even if it meant that. What I want you to see here is that Abraham's obedience showed his great love for God and faith in God in his actions. It's not enough to simply say, I love you. Love must find some tangible expression, some way of showing itself. And so we care for those we love. We give them gifts. Love expresses itself. Great love expresses itself in great ways. And so it only makes sense that the greatest love the world has ever known expresses itself in the greatest imaginable way. 
And this is what we have in Christmas. Our theme is this. Because God in His great, great love has given the greatest gift of all in His Son, we ought to receive Him with joyful faith that we might be saved. God loved and gave. We believe and are saved. Look at our passage this morning. John three thirteen to 21. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Let me repeat our theme. Because God in his great, great love has given the greatest gift of all in his son. We ought to receive him with joyful faith and be saved. God loved and gave, we believe and are saved. Here's a little background to our scene in this passage. Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders, has come to Jesus at night to find out more about who he is. He knows something's up with Jesus, but he doesn't quite understand who he is. So Jesus teaches Nicodemus about the new birth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You must have your heart changed in order To know who Jesus is. And their conversation seems to go on through verses 14 and 15. Where Jesus tells him the message that God uses to change hearts. The person and the work which changes heart. The Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And then in verses 16 to 21 we have John's explanation and interpretation of Jesus' words. John expounds this message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God given for sinners. And what is highlighted in this passage, especially in verse 16, is the greatness of God in sending a Savior. And in particular, we see the greatness of God's love. So I'm going to guide us through this passage considering God's great love, number one. Number two, God's great gift. And number three, God's great salvation. God's great love, God's great gift, and God's great salvation. And the right response on our end is to sit here in awe of God's great, great love. In some ways, the response called for this week is the same as last week. The response this week is to believe the gospel, believe everything you hear about Christ coming for for sinners. But this belief is not just an intellectual, yes, I believe that, sure, I agree with that. This is a joyful faith 
that Christ has come down to save sinners. And that if you receive the good news of Jesus, you will be saved. First, let's consider God's great love. One of the most mysterious concepts to think about, for me, and I think for you as well probably, is God's own love for himself. And by that, I mean the love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God has always existed, and He has always existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We call that the Trinity. Three persons in one God. And there has always been a perfect and perpetual love between those persons of the Trinity. And then, mysteriously, God created and began to share this love with His creatures, with those He had made. Some things we'll never know, but don't you wonder what it was like For Adam and Eve, for Adam to live in relationship with God before the fall. Now we will experience being in the presence of God in its fullness one day in the kingdom of God. But think about what it must have been like for Adam before the fall. Now the word love is not actually used in those verses to describe God's relationship to Adam, but I don't know what else you would call it. Consider the gifts that God gave to Adam in the garden. Adam wakes up in the morning ready for a day of work, only there's no dread as he goes to work the soil of the garden. Only joy and satisfaction in a job well done. And when he's hungry, he goes and plucks a fresh, ripe piece of fruit from a tree. And, and then, in a wonderful gift, perhaps the second most wonderful gift of all, Eve, his perfect compliment, is given to him. And he exclaims, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And I say second most wonderful because walking with God in harmony would have been the best gift of all. And yet, despite this amazing love that God expressed to Adam, And Eve, by one act of disobedience and rebellion, they cast it all aside. They turned the world upside down when they obeyed their own selfish desires instead of God's command. Now they will reap the consequences of their actions. They will die, just as God said it would take place. And every human after them will share in their guilt and in their death. But... And what's a big surprise, God doesn't totally abandon them. But what do we see God do? He gives them yet another gift. He gives them garments of skin, presumably taken from one of the animals, to cover their shame. See, what's even more mysterious and mind-blowing than the love God has for himself within the Trinity is the love that God has for humans who have rejected His love and rule over their lives. This is unbelievable. As D.A. Carson says, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. The greatness of God's love is not that He loves those who are acceptable or worthy or good. It is that He loves those who are unacceptable, unworthy, and lacking any good in themselves. And this is the greatness of God's love expressed for sinners. John says, God so loved the world that He gave. 
And the world here refers to humanity. It speaks to his motivation for what he did in giving his son. It speaks really to who God is. As John says in another place, God is love. It's his very nature to love those he has created. And so in Matthew 5, 45, we read that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. That he sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. So consider your own sin against God and yet his love for you and the gifts that he gives. Are you not like Adam and Eve in spurning God's great love? He lavishes his goodness on you and yet you respond in disobedience and unthankfulness and anger and lust and pride and greed. Do you ever have mornings where everything is frantic and you're frustrated and in your impatience you grumble? You grumble against God or you snap at your loved ones and say hurtful things. And then you maybe get in your car and you start off to work or the grocery store and the sun gleams in through the window and you feel the warmth of the sun on your face. And in that moment... You are sitting there enjoying the good gift of God without even realizing it. Now, what we ought to think is, I should have just been struck down by God for my sin, and He gives me gifts. He blesses me. Expressions of His love for us, for you and for me, for sinners. But what is so amazing about God's love for us sinners isn't that just that he gives us good gifts. His love actually moved him to give the greatest gift the world has ever seen in his son, Jesus Christ. We see God's great love expressed in the great gift that he gives to sinners. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, probably the first thing that sticks out to you about this is the one of a kindness of this gift. This gift to the world is God's one and only Son. He reserved His best for sinners, for the world. And we recall God's words to Abraham, Take your son, your one and only son whom you love, Isaac. Sacrifice him in the region of Moriah, there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So God doesn't just give us gifts. He doesn't just give us good gifts. He gives us the gift, as one commentator says. The Son is God's gift to the world, and moreover, it is the gift. There are no divine gifts apart from or outside the only Son of God. God gave his absolute best for those who were at their absolute worst. 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God's gift God's great gift is seen not only in the uniqueness of the gift, but in the purpose of this gift. And we hit on this some last week. Jesus was born in order to die. Now, there's a lot that goes on between his birth and his death. His, 
his preaching, his healing, his serving others, his perfect life and obedience to God. But all of that culminates in his obedience to the Father in his death on the cross for sinners. This wasn't simply God's plan B because plan A failed. This is God's mysterious plan from the foundation of the world for the sake of the world. And we see hints all along throughout Scripture that this is where things are headed. Even after the fall of Adam and Eve, we hear in the curse to the serpent of the Savior, He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. And we see it in Abraham offering up his son Isaac. Jesus is the ram caught in the thicket and offered up as a substitute. And we also see it in what seems to be a strange account of the bronze serpent during Israel's travels through the wilderness. We read about that in Numbers chapter 21. And really, we can hardly blame the Israelites for grumbling. Can you really say you do things much differently? Feet worn and weary stomach growling constantly for food, and the only stuff you have to fill your belly is this miserable manna? Sure, God had just given them an important victory, but what did it matter if you're just going to starve to death in the desert? And so they grumbled against God. And I have to think, how often do I grumble against God for far less than that? How unthankful. How discontented I am with the the blessings that God has given me in this life. Well, the people repent after they turn to Moses and cry out, God, uh, Moses, please help us here. Moses prays and God gives instructions to Moses on what should be done. So we're told that Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone... He would look at the bronze serpent and live. And Jesus, who taught that all the law and the prophets, all of the scripture from beginning to end, ultimately point to him. In John three fourteen and 15 shows that this event also ultimately is, was meant to point to him. The bronze serpent that was lifted up for the healing of God's people was simply a foreshadowing of the Savior who would be lifted up on the cross for eternal healing. That's what the term lifted up is referring to. And the three other times in John that this term lifted up is used, it has this shade of meaning in the background. Romans, or excuse me, John 12, 32 through 33. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And John says, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And this is the gospel. Gospel simply means good news. And it refers to the work of Jesus in his coming, in his living and obedience to Christ, and his dying on the cross for sinners and being raised from the dead. So when Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 about the gospel, he says it's that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to many. Now I can imagine someone saying, now why are you talking about this at Christmas? This is Christmas. Isn't this supposed to be about Jesus' birth? About his coming into the world? And to that I say, 
talk of Jesus' birth must include at some point along the way his death. For that's why he came, to save sinners by the work of his cross. And someone might respond to that by saying, this is his gift to us? A man beaten and bloodied, hanging from a cross, dead and buried, a gift? What kind of gift is this? And I say, this is the gift that you need more than anything else in the whole world. Your greatest need is a remedy for eternal death. Each one of us will one day die and face the one who formed us from the dust. And what will we say then? What excuses will we have for our life of grumbling against God? What excuses will spare us from the death we all deserve? Not only physical death, but eternal death. Well, God in His great love for the world has given a great gift, and it is yours for the taking. The offer is here in the proclamation of Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, and if you receive Him, you will experience God's great salvation. Forgiveness of your sins. Peace with God. Eternal life. This is God's great salvation. Jesus came so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, John explains, because those who have not believed stand condemned already. That's why he came. All the world without him stands condemned. And you are condemned without Christ. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Now, I'm sorry if this grosses you out, but I get this image in my mind every time I read verses 19 and 20. This image of walking into an old musty barn and you flip on the lights and all of a sudden all around you see little bugs scurrying to get out of the light. They have a fear of being exposed. And that's what Jesus' coming is like. Jesus, the light of the world, has come and he exposes our evil deeds. And we don't like it. By nature, we want to cover our sins. We want to cover, cover our evil deeds. How does Jesus expose our evil deeds? He exposes our evil deeds by being everything we should have been. By living a life of perfect righteousness, by living in perfect obedience to the Father, by living for the sake of his neighbor, by loving God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and by loving his neighbor as himself. He's so good, you can't help but see that we are so bad. Now, I like to think I'm a pretty good basketball player. My crossover, I think, is pretty good. Um, I've got pretty good ups for a short guy who's nearing 40. And I've worked a lot on my jumper. But most of all, what I've got is hustle. But if you put me on the court with LeBron James, I'm going to be exposed. (laughs) There's no comparison. It will be ugly. And when Jesus, the light of the world, comes on the scene, everyone is exposed for what we truly are. The contrast could not be clearer. 
We can fool our family and our friends and our pastors and our fellow church members, but we cannot fool God. The light of His righteousness is so bright that it pierces down into the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And we are found out. That is why people flee the light. And really, even though we are believers, we still like to cover up our sin. We still don't like it to be exposed. And really, that's what the church is for. We are to walk in the light with one another, bringing our sins into the light, that they might be exposed and eradicated, that we might be filled with the light of life. But there's a great promise here. For any and all who will forsake their wickedness and believe in the Son, there is eternal life. This is an undoing of the curse spoken to Adam. What God offers here is nothing less than a reversal of the curse of death. Eternal life with God. Life as it was meant to be forever with joy, forever with peace, forever with love, forever. But the condition of this eternal life is belief. And this is not simply a a general belief in the existence and goodness of God. It's a belief in, a trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who was lifted up on the cross, who bore our punishment for sin, who was a substitute for sinners. It is faith in Jesus Christ crucified for me. You see, it must be personalized. It must be received personally. Not all will gain eternal life, but only those who come through Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So, Then you ask, so why aren't some people saved? Why don't some people gain this eternal life? Well, because some love the darkness rather than the light. Some do not believe in the Son who came to save us. But then you might ask, well, well, then, then why do some believe? Why do some believe and others do not? What is it in them? What is it in us that is better than those who don't believe? Were we smarter? Were we wiser? Was there more potential in us than there was in them? And to all of this we say, no. For those of us who believe there is nothing in us that is better or wiser or had more potential, but rather this is a part of the mystery of God and it is all of grace. Grace. God's grace in giving us the new birth that our eyes might be open to the glory of God, that our hearts might yearn for Christ and His goodness. That anyone is saved at all is all of grace. We should ask not why anyone goes to hell, but why anyone at all gains eternal life. As we read in the context, verses 1-8, through No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And this new birth is brought about by the Spirit who blows wherever He will. And as this gospel is preached, as Jesus crucified for sinners is proclaimed, the Spirit moves wherever He pleases to bring light into darkness. He gives life to dead hearts. He gives faith to the unbelieving heart. It's a mystery why some believe and others don't, but the offer is here for you today. For unbeliever and believer alike, will you embrace 
the light of Christ or flee to the darkness? Will you turn once again from your sin, believer? Turn once again to the Christ who was given for you? That your evil deeds might be exposed and brought to light? That you would walk in the light, the light of Christ. I read a story just the other day about a drive-by shooting in Knoxville, Tennessee. A group of teenagers were just hanging out on their front porch. When all of a sudden, gunshots began ringing out around them. What would you do if you were doing, you were just hanging out and gunshots started firing around you? I would hide. Probably many of us would. It was determined later no one at the house was targeted, but that the shooting was gang-related. But when the shots began, the 15-year-old high school football player, Xavion Dobson, laid himself over his three friends to protect them. They remain uninjured. But Xavion died on sight. It was a story of protection, of self-sacrifice, of self-giving, laying his life down in the heat of the moment for his friends. And in John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's exactly what Christ has done for all those who will come to him in faith. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What love is this? What love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Father, we are thankful for your great love expressed in your great gift of Jesus Christ, your Son, offered up for sinners on the cross. And we ask that you would give us faith where we are lacking. That you would Bring us once again to repentance over our sins. That we would walk in the light as He is in the light. That we would flee from the darkness to the light, our Savior Jesus Christ. Fill us with a sense of awe at the greatness of Your love so that we in turn would overflow in love towards one another, and toward your world for the sake of Christ and for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.